my job and what I do with your child related to OCD or anxiety or whatever is not to eliminate it. It's to help you tolerate it. To be able to live in that space of uncertainty and it to be okay. Because life is uncertain. Hey, everybody, and welcome to Hope Peace Together. This is a show that gets real about mental health struggles and how to overcome them. Here you'll find personal stories, practical tools, and professional insight for the journey towards mental well-being, whether that's for yourself, a loved one, or the community around you. This is a place where hope is definitely alive. Welcome to the show with your host, Sherry Burkhard. Welcome to the Hope Peace Together podcast. This is your host, Sherry, and today I have in Joy Ryan, who's a local counselor, and she is going to share with us about OCD in children. And OCD, if you don't know, stands for Obsessive Compulsive Disorder. So it's something that people kind of maybe flippantly talk about, but don't really realize all the ins and outs. So that's why I asked Joy to come share about this topic. Welcome, Joy. Thank you. So tell us a little about yourself and your part of a counseling practice. So fill us in about that. So I got my degree in 2012 from Sam Houston. I got my master's. And then in 2015, my husband and I joined together and started Connect Psychological Services. And in that process, I became a registered play therapist as well. So we have five other counselors. I always have to count like the office space. Uh, We have five other counselors that work with us in Connect. And we this about 70% of our practice is working with kids and families. So that's predominantly who we see. We can work with anyone, but that's just kind of how it shakes out. So 2019, I decided that I wanted to become a little more focused in my work with kids. And that's when I decided to get more training in OCD, pediatric OCD. So in 2019, April of 2019, I went to Wisconsin to be a part of the Behavioral Therapy Training Institute with the IOCDF, which is the International OCD Foundation. And they did a specific track on pediatric OCD. So that was an intensive that I did. And then when I came back, of course, I've been a part of the IOCDF virtual conference and trying to learn as much as I can about OCD. And then most recently, I finished up, I did case consultation. They offer that. And so I can work with I worked with Dr. Wagner, who's big in pediatric OCD and has written a lot of stuff and things for practitioners to use in their practice and working with kids with OCD. So I got to do some case consultation with her, and that was great because we met for six weeks and over Zoom and just talked about different cases. And she kind of helped. She would kind of help guide and lead. And so that's kind of where my, I guess, passion and knowledge of pediatric OCD has come in. And I realized that there was a need as well in our area, that there are several wonderful clinicians that work with OCD in adults, but not as many with kids. And so that's kind of how that was my journey kind of to OCD and becoming a part of that community. Well, I love all that. And I know those acronyms can be hard. Oh, because so we, many. We call it alphabet soup around here. <laughs> so it's like, wait, what? <laughs> I know. I realized I was like, I need to say all of this out because if I start just saying letters, it gets lost. <laughs> yes. 
So because of that, you know, we hear the term OCD thrown around a lot. I'm so OCD. You hear those kinds of Mm -hmm. things because someone's using that more as a descriptor about themselves saying that they, you know, like things a certain way or certain routine. But that's not really the context we're discussing it today. And so I thought it might be helpful to talk about what the true diagnosable OCD is. Yes. It's interesting as I've been reading about OCD and things like that. From the perspective of someone who has OCD, I read a great article and she talked about that, you know, the term obsessed, I'm so obsessed with this new food or I'm obsessed with this new song. For someone that struggles with OCD, it really diminishes their struggle. And so just in my own life, in my own vocabulary, I've really tried to take that word out, you know, in working with people that deal with OCD. So OCD is defined by two, there are two main things. The letters give it away, obsessions and compulsions. So obsessions are unwanted, intrusive thoughts or images that trigger intensely distressing feelings. So, you know, someone with OCD, a kid with OCD, they're bombarded with these thoughts that keep happening and in different frequencies, depending upon their severity of their OCD. The second part of that and what has to be present to be able to be diagnosed as OCD is the compulsions. And they are behaviors An individual engages in the attempt to get rid of the obsessions and or decrease his or her distress. So it's a two-part thing. So they have these unwanted thoughts, urges, and then they have the compulsion to try to rid the anxiety, rid the inner turmoil that they're feeling Related to those obsessions, they do the compulsions or the rituals, Mm -hmm. habits. That's It's called all kinds of things. So, well, and as a person with OCD, and it, you know, I find myself sometimes, and I don't struggle with it like I did, but when I was that did start when I was younger and probably up through my 20s was an issue. And that goes all, oftentimes along with an anorexia, you know, mm-hmm. you have that. So the obsession, but then the compulsion being exercise and rituals you have to follow, things like that. So I'm always careful when how I share about it too, because it can really feel like it diminishes the experience when someone's saying, well, you know, I have to have a certain, my house cleaned by a certain person, so it's neat or whatever, when that's not really quite what we're Mm -mm. talking about. No. And I think also someone that's obsessed with order in their house, right, or cleanliness or things like that, they can still go on with their normal day. If their house is a wreck, they don't like it, it bothers them, but they can still move on. With someone with OCD, it consumes their day. Mm -hmm. Like their obsessions and their compulsions consume their day. So that's right. also they wouldn't be able to leave the house until those things those are things completed. are done. Yes, mm-hmm. exactly. So OCD can be focused on a specific area of obsession versus a pervasive thought throughout someone's you know every aspect of someone's mm-hmm. life. So what are the most common areas that you see? So I feel like the number one, I guess, type of OCD is contamination OCD. So that can be fear of germs. It could be fear of sickness. It could be fear of disease, fear of death, all of that contamination. Another kind of a little caveat of contamination that I've learned about because I've had some clients 
is called disgust OCD. So someone with disgust OCD may not want their sweaty gym clothes to touch the seat of their car, or they don't want their backpack that's been at school all day around all these germs to be in their room, right? But when you try to get at, like, what are you afraid of? They they don't know. I just don't want it there. I don't like it. I don't want it. So that's a little bit of a caveat with contamination because there's no fear driving, mm-hmm. right? So contamination. There's also harm OCDs. They are plagued with violent thoughts and images constantly feeling like the fear of I'm going to do something. I'm going to harm someone. I'm going to harm someone else. I'm going to do something that's going to cause harm to someone or someone else. So they're constantly trying to navigate, making sure safe, you know, Mm -hmm. all of their compulsions have to do with safety. Right. right? We've touched a little bit on that with Larissa Eichenberger as Mm -hmm. far as sometimes that's something that happens during post-pregnancy that can come up. Yes, it sure can. Yeah. The postpartum OCD Mm -hmm. of feeling like I'm going to harm in some way harm my baby. Mm -hmm. Yes. Then there's what they call just right OCD. So those types of what you see in that OCD is it doesn't point to a specific fear, but things have to be just right. So that's where the checking and the counting and the arranging and things like those compulsion type things come into play because it's just not right. The book is not supposed to be there and I can't move on until I put the book where it's supposed to go, right? Mm -hmm. And so, again, I don't fear that anything's going to happen, but I can't move on with my day until things are ordered. Ordered. And whether so, or I walked out of that door, I need to walk back. You know, they have these certain things that they have to do. There's OCD related to sex, like pedophilia, sexual orientation and things like that. So not ask, I don't, I haven't seen that in my practice working with kids, Mm -hmm. but that is an OCD that people struggle with. And then the last one, and there's probably several little caveats that people deal with that, but I'm just trying to address the most common or the ones that I've seen. And the last one is scrupulosity. So that deals with religious and moral obsessions. So the fear of offending God, the fear of going to hell, the fear, you know, those fears that are tied in religious Mm -hmm. things, they do compulsions in order to try to get their standing with God in the right place. And it never, it's just constant. You know, they see something which triggers something, which now I have to confess, or now I have to pray, or now... Right. So those are kind of the major ones that I've worked with and I've seen and that are kind of in the literature, you know, when you research those right. things. So there can be early signs of OCD that show themselves before it heads into an issue that seems unmanageable. And that, you know, you're especially seeing that since your practice is focused on yes. children mm-hmm. where it may not, you know, be some of the things that you just talked about. You're really probably going to see more in an adult than in a little kid. But some of those signs may have been present when mm-hmm. they were kids. So what are some things that you see that pop up in those early stages? So first and foremost, I feel like when I have a parent come to me and they're concerned about their child, the first thing I ask is, is there a history of OCD in your family? And typically, those parents that they see things, you know, and they're not real sure, but they have OCD themselves. Mm-hmm. Or 
they know someone very close, whether it was a parent or a spouse, have OCD. So their sensors are already kind of up anyway. And so a lot of times they'll be sitting in my office and they're like, I think we might be heading in this direction kind of thing. And so that's first and foremost. So there's a family component. Secondly, if they're coming to me and they're sitting there and they're like, I don't know what's going on, you know, we talk about family routine and schedule and and how rigid is their child in things that have to happen a certain time. I start mm-hmm. to learn about how the child is really dictating the family. And typically what happens is if they get to the point where they're like, we can't live like this anymore. Right. Right. And so we can't even get out the door because we're dealing with these rituals. Exactly. So that's also one of the early signs, I guess, is really understanding a family's dynamic and how what's happening within the family system that now has gotten to be so difficult that they're we need help. There's something going on. Right. Mm -hmm. And so we can talk more uh, about this later. But I think family accommodation is what we call it. And OCD is huge because I think a parent probably even inadvertently doesn't realize that they're accommodating their kid until it gets to a point where they're exhausted and they're done. And then they're like, okay, I can't do it anymore. And when we kind of trace it back, we see that all of these ways that, you know, anxiety and or OCD has been perpetuated, you know, now it's just now come to a head. Mm -hmm. Like we can't deal with this anymore. So it's really working also with that family system to say, okay, how is this reinforced? Right. Even though you don't mean to reinforce it. Right. Well, because a lot of times we, we're going along thinking, you know, just with our day-to-day life and it's just not something like we're like, oh, well, I can work around this. I can work with this. I can work with that. And it's not till that tipping point that we're like, yes. oh, wait, no, I can't. No. Because partly because we're all moving so fast. Yes. So. Yes. And, you know, and that's what I try to tell parents in my office, too. I'm like, it's not your fault. You know, you don't realize that this is what's happening. But we have to make some adjustments. And you're going to have to make some adjustments in the way that you respond because, If not, you're a part of the compulsion. Mm -hmm. You are a part of the compulsion. So we've got to get to where we kind of separate that. And there's things that I need you to do as I'm also working with your child. So there are different approaches to diagnosing OCD. You can go through a more formal testing process Mm -hmm. um, with a psychologist. And actually, I had Dr. Pasqua on and we talked some about that. Or maybe a psychiatrist, but you also can just go directly to a counselor who works with OCD. Tell us a little about these different approaches and then, you know, what you do in your practice. So that's exactly right. So if a client has already come to me and says, I have OCD, more than likely they've had some type of testing done through a psychologist and or they've maybe had a psychiatrist and as they've talked through the psychiatrist is like, you know, I think this is more than just anxiety. I think you may have OCD. So sometimes they already come knowing full well that I have OCD and we just hit the ground running and know what to do. Mm-hmm. In kids, it's a little different. Again, like you said, so they're younger and n- not as much history, you right. know, that they that they had. So typically a parent will say, this is what I suspect. This is what's going on. And so they're is an assessment out there. Now, it doesn't, 
there's no test that I can give a child to go, either you have OCD or you don't, right? right? So <laughs> we so, all want that black and white answer. Right, right. right. Yeah. So there's no test out there that's to say, you know, obviously through clinical interview and things like that, you gain a lot of perspective about what's going on with the child. But there's a assessment I do, and it's called the Yale Brown OCD scale. It's free. It's, you know, like anyone can can get it, but that's what we use to kind of assess what is the severity of the symptom. And when I do that, if I'm not sure, like, okay, it's sounding like OCD, but, you know, anxiety is very, you know, very prevalent as well. And OCD is an anxiety disorder. So like, trying to tease out, are we really dealing with OCD? Are we dealing with anxiety? That kind of helps really narrow the scope. Because if I have a score that's not in the mild to moderate range, then I'm like, are we really dealing with that? Versus someone that's kind of off the charts. And you're like, okay, we are definitely dealing with OCD here. So so it's the Yale Brown OCD skill. In children, they have a children's version. So it's a little bit, the questioning is a little bit easier for a child to understand. You know, it's interactive. It's mm-hmm. not, you know, we're able to talk through and talk about. Now, when you said about this thought, you know, how often is this happening and how often do you try to make it stop? You know, things like that right. to give you a clue as to really how severe are the symptoms. I know from my own experience with OCD, there's, you know, common questions that come up, especially from the parents. What do you think you typically hear from parents? Is it, why can't they just stop? Well, it's interesting. So, and this has happened, I feel like, I guess because I kind of graduated up my practice, right? Mm-hmm. I, I didn't even mention this, but I have three kids. And so as they're older, I'm seeing more people kind of thing, right? right? And so... I've had this come lately where, you know, parents are just, it's kind of like, why are they doing this? Like, why can't we just go on? Why does this have to be an ordeal every day? And why can't they just stay at school? That kind of thing. And what I've found is those parents that have kind of the least amount of tolerance for it, they just aren't anxious people. They're not, you know, now, all of us, to some degree, have some anxiety, but it's it's kind of a continuum, right? Mm-hmm. Like what I found when I'm working with, I'm like, you don't even get it, <laughs> like you know, like the, right. you know. Whereas a parent that does deal with anxiety and does deal with worry is so much more compassionate and so much more empathetic to their child, right? And so you have those two types of parents that, you know, that I see. So the parent that really doesn't know a whole lot about anxiety, their accommodation is not going to be as much because they, you know, they're not feeding. Whereas someone who, a parent that does maybe deal with anxiety themselves, right, is much more, I feel distressed. I don't want my child to feel distressed. So I'm going to do everything I can not to have my child feel distressed. Right. Well, you can kind of get that anxiety loop where you're feeding each other. Exactly. Because if I feel anxious because you're anxious and then I want to make your anxiety feel better, you know, it's, <laughs> right. so it's, it's kind of it's this loop. Right. But, you know, for the most part, you know, parents love their kids and they don't want them in distress. I mean, as a parent myself, and I'm sure you can say the same thing, right? Like you hate to see your kid hurt and you don't. And so you try to do everything within your power to make that go away. And then, you know, another another thing that happens, right, that they end up in my office is I try everything 
and nothing has worked. Right. right. So they realize it's bigger than something they can it's, solve. It, right. Well, I know that was always a common question, not maybe as much for me from my parents, but from friends is, well, I don't understand. Like, mm-hmm. why, why can't you just stop? Like, <laughs> right. Yeah. And, you know, and that's hard to put into words. Mm-hmm. So in previous podcasts, especially the ones on eating disorders, because like we talked about, there's often an overlap of OCD there. We've talked about the fact that there can be a lot of fear about giving up that obsessive compulsive component, like Mm -hmm. those rituals, we really have fear about losing them. And you feel like you need it to survive in a Mm -hmm. sense. So do Mm -hmm. you find that children are coming to you fearing letting go of their OCD? Yes and no. So on the no part, sometimes kids are so overwhelmed by their obsessions that they want it to stop. Mm -hmm. They just want relief. They're needing relief. And so those are easier to kind of move in a direction to where we're really trying to combat the OCD, right? Now, on the flip side, yes, in fact, I have a client now who... They are very skeptical of the treatment. They're not sure that they're ready to go down that road. So, yeah. So, I think I think it's also readiness right, versus- for treatment, right? Like, and, and so, what I try to do in my practice is I try to educate, first and foremost, about what OCD is, what kinds of things are happening in their brain, And with kids, I really try to use metaphors like there's a false alarm or your brain is like a computer and there's a glitch, right? And the OCD is the glitch, you know, and and things like that so they can understand like this is a false alarm. This is a trick. OCD is trying to trick me. And with little kids, I really try to externalize the OCD like it's it's its thing outside of you, right? But it really depends on their readiness that makes sense. For treatment, whether they're they're willing to start kind of talking about those obsessions and compulsions, and then how is it that we're going to treat that? I started getting help when I was more in my teenage years, mm-hmm. but if someone earlier on would have said, that's what's going on, it would have been a sense of relief. Like, oh, like this isn't just something like about me. This is something externally that could be addressed. So there's probably also that exhale of, oh, you get it. And, yeah. oh, there's something that can be done about mm-hmm. this. Yeah. And when they get to that point, you know, the readiness of treatment goes way up, right? Like, oh, I don't have to keep living this way, mm-hmm. right? And so that begins to outweigh my need for wanting to control and not give up. There is a different way. You mean I can actually function and I can actually be a part and and things like that. So for parents that are, you know, going to talk to their kids about coming to see you or someone else and the child may not know that yet because the parents may not have that language to share mm-hmm. with them, how do you suggest parents approach that with the kids? That usually is a question that parents say, what do we tell them? <laughs> <laughs> Why are they coming? Generally, In most cases, there has been a conversation between parent and child about what is going on. Again, they may not have the language and things like that, but generally there's a conversation of, you know, you really have a hard time doing X, Y, or Z, or do you know when this happens, this is what you do. 
kind of thing. So there's generally been a conversation about, even if it's not specific. Mm -hmm. And so I just say, build on that conversation when you're talking to your child about coming to me. Just say, hey, remember when we were talking about that? Well, there's this lady. This is what she does. And she's going to help you and she's going to help me. This is a collaborative process. This is not, I'm just going to send you because there's something wrong with you, right? Right. No, no. This is a whole family thing. We're going to learn as a family how to better support you and be there with you kind of thing. So the child doesn't feel like, well, what's wrong with me? You know? Mm -hmm. And so that's kind of how I have parents phrase it, you know, piggyback on a conversation you've already had. And in most cases, there has been a conversation. Right. (laughs) Before they get to my office. So tell us a little about how you go about treating OCD once they get to your office. I kind of alluded to that a little bit. So when they come in and we're suspecting OCD, I tell the parent right away, you're going to be a part of this process, which is a little different Mm -hmm. than I typically work with kids. If they're coming for anxiety or anger management or whatever, it looks very different than when I'm working with OCD. So from the get-go, I let the parent know you're going to be a part of this process. Almost it, probably the, about a second session, I'm doing the assessment, the Y-bots or the Cybots, the children's <laughs> version. The language just helps the interview process move better just because it's written for children. So we do that assessment. And from there, I let the parents and the child know this is kind of what the score is showing me. This is what this means. And this is what we're going to do. And so we then go into creating a fear hierarchy because I need to know what things on a scale of one to 10, what things are most distressing, what things are mildly distressing and what things, oh, that doesn't bother me at all kind of Mm -hmm. thing. So it's usually based on what they've already communicated to me are their obsessions. And so we kind of take that and we kind of run with it as far as trying to come up with all these scenarios. And when we get all of these scenarios down, then I go back to the child with the parent present and say, okay, on a scale of one to 10, tell me how distressing it is or how worried does this make you or whatever language, you know, they understand. And so we come up with this list of things and a number, a sud, a subject unit of distress to kind of go with each line item or each statement, each statement on their fear hierarchy. And from there, then we start creating exposures. And that is the fun part for me because I feel like it taps into a creative part. I'm not super creative, let me just say. <laughs> I'm not an artist. I you sit in our art room. I was like, <laughs> this kind of thing. I'm like, can I just come and watch people do this? I don't want to do this myself. But the creative side of me of really trying to come up with some fun ways that they can do exposures that they don't feel so like, oh, this is so threatening and uh You know, I don't want to do this where when I work with younger kids, you know, the buy-in. So we set up reinforcement. So when you're doing these exposures, you're having the chance to earn stars and stars get you rewards. And so there's total buy-in with kids. They're like, oh, yeah, I want to earn the piece of candy when we go to the store. I want to earn ice cream for dessert. or And so that helps. But that's really with littler kids, we really have to put on that reinforcement 
piece mm-hmm. of things to build that with the parent. And the, and the great thing is the parent sitting right there. So it's like, mom, what do you think about that? Do you think that that is a good reward for this many times that she does the exposure? And so we kind of set goals. We were like, okay, how many times are you going to try to do it? That's, to me, the fun part. And then when they come back in for the next session, we talk about, how did it go? What are some of the problems you ran into? And things like that. And then I'll say, are we ready? Are we ready to move up? So the so goal is you start somewhere in the middle. You start with something that's, they rate a four or a five. Easy. Build confidence. Like, okay, I can do this. Okay, look, I'm doing this. And then we just kind of systematically move up. Right. You know. So you don't tackle the biggest one first. No. For kids, it's like walking up the stairs. So I'm like, I don't tell you to stand at the bottom of the stairs and get to the top in one step, right? You have to take it step by step. And that's exactly what we're going to do. We're going to take it step by step by step. For a kid, I think that also really like, oh, right. she's not going to ask me, to, you know, like tonight, I'm not going to have to. And I always say that. I'm like, when we're building the fear hierarchy, don't panic, okay? I'm not going to ask you to do your most feared thing today, mm-hmm. but I need to know what that is. I need to know what we're working towards. And so they're like, okay. <laughs> so we mentioned that, you know, OCD and anxiety have a lot of crossover mm-hmm. since OCD is an anxiety disorder, but you may treat that differently. Mm-hmm. So ha- what does that look like? So obviously for OCD, the compulsions have to be present to kind of make it OCD versus just anxiety. And there have been times where parents are like, I suspect OCD, but when I get further into it, I'm like, no, it's anxiety. And so with anxiety, I typically don't have the parents involved so much. Like with OCD, the treatment, I want them every step of the way. A lot of times, too, because if there are rituals happening, sometimes even unconscious to the kid, it's Mm -hmm. so learned and so done, it's helpful for a parent to be there to go, no, honey, remember, this is what you have to do, you know, and sometimes they're like, what? It's just a part of the process. So with anxiety, I don't have the parent involved as much, meaning I don't have them sitting in the session. Now, it's still... Our practice, just by nature, is very collaborative. We don't ever see a kid in isolation and the parents have no idea what's going on because that's not effective. Mm -hmm. For 45 minutes in my office, it's not going to change the world if the parent has no idea what we're doing. (laughs) You know, (laughs) so I just don't necessarily have them in session contributing. I can find out pretty easily from the kid where are mom and dad accommodating this anxiety mm-hmm. and then I can address it. Or sometimes our skill work involves now, you know, Susie's going to do this, but mom and dad, you're not allowed to say, you know, even if Susie ask about the worry, you just go, oh, we can't talk about that, you know, in their ways to not reinforce the anxiety. So, It's different, but still has some of the same components because just of how we work with kids, we work with parents too. (laughs) I think one of the similarities that really comes to mind, and and we have a podcast coming out with Shannon Blum, who specializes in anxiety, Mm -hmm. and just that concept that we tend to think that avoiding those things that Mm -hmm. make us anxious will 
make that better. And actually that tends to feed the anxiety. It temporarily helps you for that moment, right? Like I have a little client who has separation anxiety. So being at school is obviously a big separator, right? Mm -hmm. And so uh, when asked, I said, how did you feel when you, how was your anxiety when you stayed home? Well, it went away. But how was it the next day when it was time to go to school? You know, like really bad, (laughs) right? You just strengthened it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so it is a vicious cycle. And kind of the overarching kind of takeaway that I want my clients and my parents to hear, which I think is so important, my job and what I do with your child related to OCD or anxiety or whatever is not to eliminate it. It is to help you tolerate it, Mm -hmm. to be able to live in that space of uncertainty and it to be okay, because life is uncertain. I can't promise you, you have OCD, you're always going to have OCD, but you can learn to live with it in a way that you're the boss. Mm -hmm. It's not the boss. And so... I love that. I think that, oh, I was talking to a group of sixth or 12th graders this weekend on anxiety. <laughs> and, you know, that concept that we have this idea, maybe that if we have any anxiety present, that that's bad, but it it's not. Mm-hmm. I mean, we are wired in a way where that does serve a purpose. But right. It's when it starts driving us right. that, you know, that gets a little out of whack on that continuum. Yes. Yes. And and that's what, you know, just in working with kids, I say all emotions are good. Mm-hmm. Right. And even anger is good. Frustration. It We get angry and frustrated or anxious. Sometimes our body's telling us you need to be. You need to be anxious. This is not a good situation or this is, you know. And so, but like you said, it's like the computer starts churning out, like everything's dangerous. Everything needs to be feared, you know. And so that's when it becomes right. That's when it an issue. To, right. I think you actually talked a little bit about <laughs> this, but, you know, what has really drawn you to like to work with children and parents facing this Mm -hmm. issue? Well, I think first, I think there was a need. As I was researching, you know, how do I get more information about this? What do I need to do? You know, I love going to, unfortunately, COVID's kind of stopped that a bit, but I love going to conferences and I love hearing. I'm a you know, an auditory learner. So I do better and a visual learner. So I do better by sitting in front of someone and Mm -hmm. them teaching me. And so I knew the need was there. But as I've gotten into it, I just I love the creativity. It's not there's not this little manual and like step one, step two, step three, step four. And you do that with every client like that would be super boring to me. (laughs) And so I just love that with each little client I have come in my office, and sometimes they're not little, sometimes they're teenagers. It's like, it's brand new. It's like, okay, how are we going to do this? I get such joy from that. Like to say, okay, how is this affecting you? Where is your distress coming from? How impactful is it on your life? And so let's see what we can do about it. You know, I'm not going to get rid of it. You're always going to have it. And I think that's important concept that I have to reiterate and I tell, and I even tell parents, we're not getting rid of it, but we're learning to tolerate it. I think that that's kind of what has drawn me even more into working with kids. And and honestly, wish I had more on my caseload. 
Well, I loved when we were doing our pre-podcast interview because your passion for this really stood out. Uh And that's what we strive when we're connecting with the resources that we are referring to in the Mm -hmm. community that, you know, that's one of our questions. What are you passionate about? And I mean, that just exuded through (laughs) our conversation. And I really honestly hadn't thought so much about the creative aspect of that. I'm With that OCD is, you know, it's hard. And one Mm -hmm. of the things that when I was in treatment, they did is because of those routine and rituals, I was blindfolded like for several days so that I had to walk through things without things being in order. But at the time, it it did not feel good. I have to admit. No, 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 no. But on the other side of that, that actually has been a really important lesson in my life about surrendering and that feeling of when I meet that tension, actually, I can survive it. So I think that creative aspect of that is, you know, that's what you want from someone that you're going and you're trusting with, Mm -hmm. you know, something that's hard for you. Yeah. So are there any helpful resources? And if they have long acronyms, I guess we'll define them that you would recommend if someone's wanting to maybe dip their toe in and learn a little more about OCD before they pursue help? Well, for sure, I would say without a doubt, the International OCD Foundation's website, it's iocdf.org, <laughs> if you can get all those letters. It ha- is a wealth of information. To It's a wealth of information for clinicians like me who treat OCD. It's a wealth of information for family members who have someone close to them that has OCD, and it's for those that suffer with OCD. Mm -hmm. So it provides so much great information, articles, books, self-help tools. They have interactive self-help. If you're struggling with OCD, there's interactive things that you can do on that website. So I can't say enough good things about it. I go to it anytime I have, like, I need to find something. Plus, it has a referral list of people that work with OCD. And they will put that, hey, they've, you know, we're vetting them. They've been a part of our training. And then Peace of Mind Foundation is here in Houston. But I've recently learned that they have joined forces with the International OCD Foundation. So they are a part of it, still keeping peace of mind. But... You know, she's great. She does a lot of podcasts mm-hmm. and has a, has a social media presence, Elizabeth McInvale. Now, COVID has limited, but they are trying to do conferences or one-day things for people that work with OCD plus those that have OCD. So they're trying to meet the whole community. You know, it's not just for therapist, right? But it's, you know, they're trying to tailor things for community need. They have a great list. Like I was on her website and it was like treatment. What type of treatment do I need? And so she's given all kinds of information about treatment programs, you know, with the more severe cases, maybe they need more intensive work that a clinician like me who works three days a week is not able to give, you know, where they're needing maybe Every day they're needing a group and they're needing to be working through exposures in ERP very intensely. So she gives all that information. So those two things that would say you can pretty much find anything else Mm -hmm. that you need to find from those things. So I always love to end with a story of hope. What would you like to leave the audience with the audience with today around this topic? Well, I was thinking about that and I was like... 
I think my story of hope is a little more general than specific. There is no greater satisfaction and fulfillment than seeing a child's face realize that there's something different they can do. They can be something different. They can do something different. And and when they realize that, hey, this doesn't have to be in charge of me, I can be in charge of it. And of course, the parents are just like, oh, we don't have to continue this way. We don't have to continue to to walk this really hard path. There is something different. And I think for me, that's hope defined. Mm-hmm. You're getting and a so, front row seat. Yes. Miracles. Yeah. I had a parent say, I've worked with their child on OCD prior to the pandemic and saw them a couple of times since. And the mom's response to me was, we would have never made it through the pandemic had they not already had done the work mm-hmm. related to what they were you know, struggling with. And so that's another story of hope, right? Like, even though the pandemic was really difficult for almost everyone, yes, <laughs> right, in different ways, right, that the OCD was kept at bay through that. And so that was really a cool thing to hear, too. You so know. they had the tool to navigate even something... I mean, all of us have been like, well, how do I navigate this? You know, I'm having some anxiety. (laughs) So having the tools and knowing um, for for a child to know, okay, actually, I can walk through that. I mean, that's amazing. Yeah. Well, thank you so much just for sharing your passion around this topic and just for being a great resource for our community around this. If you want to find out more about Joy, her information will be in the show notes. It's also on our website, but you can go to their website. We're at www.connectps.org. So you can find them there. Um, We will also have the links to the resources that she listed in our show notes, and they also are available on the resource pages on our website as well. So if you or someone you know is struggling to connect with a resource like Joy for whatever your particular struggle is, Mosaics and Mercy is here to help. We can help you make those connections and so that you don't have to struggle with this alone. You can find that community and that support around you. So you can find us at mosaicsandmercy.com. And thanks so much for joining us today. 